Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. You might like to keep that uh, chapter of John's Gospel open in front of you for the, our entire time uh, this afternoon. I think that would be uh, helpful. I wonder if you've ever noticed uh, how filmmakers going, uh, go about making what might otherwise have been very routine or, or dull scenes a bit, a bit more exciting, a bit more engaging and involving. Um, the great filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock once explained uh, how he did it in his films. He said, well, you know, imagine a scene where you've got two people, they're just talking to one another and they've got a table between them and, uh, you know, it's routine, it's unengaging, uh, it's not that interesting really. But now imagine that we, the audience, know something else that they don't. That, in fact, there is a bomb underneath the table. Perhaps because we've seen a terrorist place it there earlier in the film. We know this, but the people in the scene do not know it. Now we have a suspense situation. We, the audience, are aware that the bomb is going to explode at one o'clock. There's a clock in the background of the scene. We can see that it's a quarter to one. And in those conditions, the same innocuous conversation, says Hitchcock, becomes fascinating because we're now participating in the scene. We're longing to warn the characters on the screen. You shouldn't be talking about such trivial matters. There's a bomb beneath you and it's about to explode. I think we have a a bit of a problem with these gospel accounts of the death of Jesus on the cross. You may even have felt it as we had that reading from Karen uh, just now. These are over-familiar stories for many of us. Uh, We think we know them already, and uh, hearing them again can be, maybe, routine and unengaging. But I want us to see in this hour around the cross uh, that if we listen carefully with fresh ears, then we will see John drawing us into a gauge with the account Uh, in just the same way that Alfred Hitchcock might have done. You see, John makes sure that we, the audience, know much more than the characters in the narrative. Much, much more. And it makes us want to shout at them, how can you be doing that? Can't you see what you're doing? Can't you see what's happening here? And that emotional engagement with the story should draw us in. Uh, to line us up with a more positive faith response that John is also going to show us in this chapter. So take the verses we just read uh, through to verse uh, 22 of John chapter 19. We might say that on the one hand, for most of the characters in this scene, this is just another routine execution of a criminal. Uh, Look at how John puts it at the end of verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. Uh, They went out to the the normal place, to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. It's uh, surprisingly brief and matter-of-fact, isn't it? For the soldiers, this was just another routine Crucifixion Crucifixion may have been uh, the harshest punishment in the Roman system of justice. It reserved for the very worst offenders, but it was nonetheless extremely common. And Jesus' crucifixion was not even the only one happening that day, we can see in this verse. 
Uh, For Pilate, the Roman governor, this, I guess, was the conclusion of a, a little local bother that had for a moment been in danger of flaring up into something nasty. Uh, he didn't like what was going on, but he also didn't care much about it either. It was also an opportunity to mock uh, those around him, hence that notice on the cross. It mocks Jesus because as he hangs under Roman power, he looks about as far from being a king as you could imagine. And it mocks the Jewish leaders because they don't like what he's written there. Uh, For the Jewish leaders, although they don't like that notice, this was hopefully an end to a a threat to the the comfortable status quo they found themselves in, their their cosy little relationship with the Romans. Something that Jesus has threatened. Jesus has made them feel uncomfortable and they're responding to that by doing this, by trying to get rid of him uh, once for all. So then, three different responses to Jesus. This is routine of no importance to me. This is an opportunity for me to mock. This makes me feel uncomfortable and threatened. And of course, people have been responding to the cross of Jesus the same way ever since. So for the soldiers, Pilate and the Jewish leaders, this was just another execution. But John wants to remind us, we know better We already know that Jesus is here voluntarily. This is exactly the death he expected to die. We already know that Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father. We know that he's the Christ, the King of the Jews. And just to make sure that we're reminded of that, John repeats three times in three verses that truth three times. And in three languages, that truth is placarded before the entire world. Everyone sees it. And reads it. Even the tourists who were visiting at the time. There's Jacob from down the road in Bethlehem reading the Aramaic, King of the Jews. There's Luigi from Rome reading the Latin, King of the Jews. There's Andrea from Athens reading the Greek, King of the Jews. The truth is there, if anyone would see it. Now the question is, what are we going to do with this inside information? We know what's going on here. Well, for the moment, I suggest that we simply dwell on the gravity of it, the seriousness of it. Our first response should be one of horror. What are they doing? Because, of course, the king of the Jews is also the lord and creator of the universe. Dwell then on the horror of it. This is what humanity will do with their God when they think they have a chance to get rid of him. And it's a murder where he is taking the punishment, not them. This is nothing less than the greatest outrage and injustice the world has ever seen. Dwell then for a moment on the horror of it. So then, first, uh, remember what we know. Remember what we know. We, the readers and hearers of John's gospel, know for sure that one of those men hanging on the cross is none less than the king of the Jews, and therefore the Lord and creator of the universe. And we've already seen in this chapter three responses to that amazing truth. There's been indifference, There's been mockery, 
and there's been a hostile discomfort. But it's in these next verses that John really highlights two alternative and contrasting responses to what's going on in this scene. There's what the soldiers do in verses 23 to 24, and then there's the women and the disciple Jesus loved in verses 25 to 27. And I want you to imagine those two responses as like two paintings, uh, two oil paintings, huge ones perhaps, in an art gallery, uh, side by side, standing in contrast to one another. The first painting is that of the soldiers who crucified Jesus, uh, beginning in verse 23. In the background of this painting, we see Jesus, whom the, the soldiers have just lifted up on the cross. And we see the notice, the inscription, which says, this is the king. We know this is the king. John reminds us again uh, with that quotation from uh, Psalm 22, that soldiers are treating Jesus the way the people once treated King David. This is the king. So that's there in the background. The king on the cross. But then in the foreground, we see the response We see that they've turned their backs on him. And uh, having stripped him completely naked, they're sharing out the stolen clothes. It's interesting, isn't it? In their eyes at that moment, those clothes, those undergarments are more valuable than he is. Consumed by the pursuit of selfish gain, it's as if he isn't there. It is a remarkable painting. I don't think we could have a more graphic painting of callous indifference. You may know Oscar Wilde's um, story about Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray has a portrait of himself uh, uh, painted when he's a young man, but as he indulges in every self-seeking desire to the harm of others and himself, it's the portrait that shows the ugly marks of that, the ugly brutality, while he remains uh, perfectly all right and looking young. And I guess likewise for us, uh, our indifference to God, where we may not feel it very much all the, much of the time or see it much of the time, but, but this picture is like Dorian Gray's picture. It is reflecting the truth of the situation. This is what our unbelief is really like. This desire to live in God's world and benefit from it, but to have nothing to do with him. You not see the, the horror of this callous indifference to God's king. There they are. There we are in the presence of God's king, but turning our backs to him, getting on with our lives as if he wasn't there, and in the end, happy to let him die. But now turn your eyes to look at the next painting from the end of verse 24. So on the one hand, this is what the soldiers did, but on the other... Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The soldiers were doing these things, but standing near the cross of Jesus were a very different group. And surely John just doesn't just want to tell us their, their physical distance from the cross here. This is a, an expression of their close solidarity with Jesus and his death. They are not turned away from him, they are facing him. Sharing his shame near the cross of Jesus, standing by the cross of Jesus, 
And this is something that leads not to, to, to a selfish squabbling, but to love. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It's a remarkable time, isn't it? Jesus is driving home in practical application at this extraordinary moment what he was just teaching his disciples the night before when he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And compared with the indifference in that first picture, this is now, of course, a beautiful picture. It's a picture of belief and solidarity and love. More than that, these are people who are loved by God in the deepest possible way. These are the people whom Jesus is dying for. So those are the two pictures, the two paintings John presents us with. Two responses to the king on the cross. On the one hand, a casual, callous indifference focused on self-centeredness, wanting to gain at the expense of others, squabbling. And on the other hand, we see the love of Jesus flooding out to those he loves, bringing them to love one another as he has loved them. And I suppose that leaves us with a very simple question this afternoon. Which painting would you rather be in? Which painting would you rather be in? When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I guess uh, for most of the characters in this uh, final passage this afternoon, this is just another death after just another execution. It is, once again, a very matter-of-fact and concise description, isn't it? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those um, around at the time cannot see beyond the surface meaning of Jesus' words when he said a little earlier, I am thirsty. So they offer him wine vinegar on a sponge, whether that's out of a kind of half-hearted sympathy or, or whether it's taunting or mocking him isn't, isn't entirely clear. Maybe it's a mix of the two. For the Jewish leaders, when Jesus said, it is finished, no doubt they breathed a sigh of relief. The threat to the status quo, to their cosy relationship with the Romans is now over. It is finished. All they want now is to clear up things as quickly as possible. They want the bodies cleared away before the Sabbath of the Passover celebration and then they can get on with life just as it was before. For Pilate and the soldiers, this is just the final stage of a, of a routine task. An unpleasant job. And it's a job they want to get over and done and go home. It is uh, Friday night after all. But once again, we know better, 
John makes sure that we know better. In verse 35 here, John strongly implies that he was there. He was there as an eyewitness testimony. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. And he wants us to know what he has seen too. He wants us to know when Jesus says it is finished, he wants us to know what it is that's finished. And he wants us to know that what is finished is Jesus' work as a perfect, life-giving, atoning sacrifice. There are, in fact, multiple details here to prove that to us. This is Jesus' work as a perfect, life-giving, atoning sacrifice. Remember, Jesus is thirsty and then he drinks. What he said earlier in the gospel, that he's going to drink the cup the Father will give him. The cup of God's wrath. Well, now he has. Verse 31, this is the day of preparation, John tells us. It's the day preparing for the Sabbath, for the day of life. Verses 36 and 37, this fulfills the scriptures. Even as the Jewish leaders want to get on with the Passover, they are missing, they are ignoring the true Passover lamb whose bones are not broken. They're missing the fact that they have pierced the one who like a fountain will cleanse God's people from sin and impurity. And the detail which John strongly highlights here in verse 34 is what happens when the soldier pierces Jesus' side. To his great surprise, I think, not just blood flows out at that point, but water. That must have got John thinking, because Jesus has been using water as a, as a symbol throughout his teaching in the gospel. Whoever believes in me, Jesus has said, streams of living water will flow from within, within him. From Jesus' perfect, sacrificial, atoning death will flow life. And I suppose once again it brings us to think, well, what are they, what are they doing? Missing all this, this amazing thing that's happening right in front of their eyes. Missing what's going on. And once again that does help us to identify with the more positive response that John shows us. And he shows us that in verses 38 through to 42. But take a look at these verses with me because this, is, this response is a bit of a surprise. These are two Jewish leaders, remember. Why does, why does John bring Nicodemus in here and remind us of the last time we met him in, in the gospel? Why does he mention that Joseph was a secret disciple? I'd like to suggest that John does that so that he can use them both as examples as examples of people who have become so convicted by the death of God's Son that they overcome all their fears. They step out of the shadows and they clearly and publicly declare their allegiance to the King. Now last time we met Nicodemus in John's Gospel, he was, I guess, merely curious about Jesus. He came to Jesus at night secretly, presumably ashamed of the impact that such a meeting might have on his standing as a religious leader were that to be made public. Likewise here, verse 38, Joseph is a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. But now Joseph and Nicodemus have been shaken into taking a public stand. 
They have said, enough is enough. We know it's a public stand because John has already told us that this all takes place very close to Jerusalem. It would have been seen by many. But these are people who are so rightly scandalized by the murder of God's king that as much as they are able, they then give him a royal burial. Verse 39, Nicodemus gets hold of 75 pounds of spices. That's a lot of spices, as was the burial custom for kings at the time. Joseph sorts out the paperwork and they lay him, verse 41, in a fresh garden tomb, just like the kings of Israel. And remember, they're doing all of this. They're making this statement of allegiance and belief before they've seen the full story, before they've seen the glories of the resurrection. But what a wonderful way to prepare for that day. And this is, I think, an obvious clarion call to those on the fringes of belief for us to get our act together and stand up, be counted. If that's you this afternoon, if you've been convicted this afternoon by John's eyewitness testimony, well, it's time to say, Enough is enough. I do believe. Or perhaps if you have a long-standing belief but have never fully made it public, think to yourself right now, why not? Take a moment now to think about Nicodemus and Joseph. And like them, let us all overcome our fears. Step out of the shadows and clearly and publicly declare our allegiance to the crucified King.